And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an update on a crucial sector of the defense industrial base. Plus, it's February, and the IRS enters into its annual pressure testing. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department updated its telework policy for the first time since 2012. The policy is permissive relative to the old one, sending a signal that DOD wants to build a workplace culture more accepting of telework. The biggest change in the policy, though, is how it addresses remote work, people working beyond commuting distance from the office they lead or work for. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more from former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Matt Donovan. Specific to teleworking policy, historically in the Department of Defense, if you count all and mostly civilians, because military really didn't telework, they just showed up at their workplace. So historically, about 5% of the DOD population was on some sort of teleworking agreement, whether it was the term remote work wasn't used at the time yet. It was teleworking. And rarely did you have anyone that teleworked 100% of the time, which is what we call remote work now. And that's one of the biggest differences in the new policy is remote work really wasn't addressed before, where now it's uh, bifurcated into telework and remote work. If we talk about the policy, and as I mentioned before, when undersecretaries, OSD undersecretaries set policies, you may have noticed that it was just published, but the pandemic was three years ago. Why did Mm -hmm. it take so long, right? That's just part of the processes within the Department of Defense where you have to coordinate policy changes to every military service, every DOD agency. And then although the PNR has a responsibility for issuing the policy, you never issue a policy without the Secretary of Defense getting a chance to look at it, right? But reviewing the new policy, it's not a heck of a lot different than what we had before when it comes to the telecommuting policy. What is new is the remote work and the very specific criteria that they put in on remote work. And then I noticed uh, for the for the hybrid, if you will, or the telecommuting policy, they they say you have to show up in person a minimum, I think it was twice in a two-week pay period and like that, which when you think about it is a very loose guidance. One of the things they do is they try to give maximum flexibility to the agency heads, the secretaries of the services and that sort of thing. So I wanted to go through a couple of things. For example, at the very beginning, it says telework and remote work work may be used to retain valuable employees, reduce costs associated with filling vacancies, increase work-life balance, recruit employees with specialized skills, etc. Does it sound to you like the department might be more supportive of telework slash remote work? What's your general idea? 
So I think the recognition that it's it's okay to allow employees and even military members some flexibility for them to you know work in their day to day lives outside of their primary job is okay, and it actually pays some benefits, and that's what they're getting at. So the Department of Defense operates in the same pool of candidates for people to fill positions as corporations do as other public agencies, other federal agencies as well. So we're all in competition for skill and talent for people. So if the if the whole environment shifts to the point that the employees have a little more say in where they go, who they work for because of these flexibility concerns, then the DOD has to follow along with that. One of the things I did was I put together a 10-year strategy for personnel and readiness. And now that, and that's a big thing in there is, you know, data dominance that you hear out of the Department of Defense and in, in an environment of strategic competition, all that sort of thing. But one of the main thrusts of the goal was to make sure that we stay competitive as an employer so that we can get the talent we need to accomplish the missions that we have. So I think that the policy reflects that, the acknowledgement that we're in an ever-shrinking talent pool and there's a lot of competition for those same people that have specific talents. If we want them to come work for the DOD, then we're going to have to offer the same compensation as close as possible, the same work flexibility, those kind of things as, say, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or, or somebody like that, or another federal agency that has opened up their work flexibility uh, mindset, if you will. It sounds to me like the culture is shifting. The department is a lot more accepting of remote work and telework. But at the same time, if we were to talk about the infrastructure, the policy lays out what the DOD CIO needs to do. DOD CIO will have to write policies and procedures for what that's going to look like. And then we have a paragraph for the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. They will need to develop policies yep. in terms of how to use classified telework devices. So in terms of developing Developing a robust infrastructure. What are some of the challenges? Where do you think we are at in terms of having that infrastructure in place to actually support all of this? It sort of was a shock to the system during the pandemic because a lot of folks who never telework all of a sudden we're thrust into a teleworking situation. So we had to issue a lot of laptops. We had to issue uh, connectivity. And uh, the CIO and USDINS had to worry about operational security, you know, to make sure we had secure connections uh, that folks couldn't monitor. I think we're in a pretty good shape. Now, the threat of uh, hacking and monitoring and, you know, cyber threats and that sort of thing is ever evolving. It takes a lot of vigilance, if you will, uh, for these agencies to make sure that uh, that they remain secure communications, even in the unclassified world. In the classified world, it's a lot more stringent, as you mm -hmm. might imagine. So 
there are a lot of people that work with classified information that aren't going to be given uh, the option to telework. It's just not going to happen. There's a lot more than there used to be. They can do it by if you're living in a place that's near another DOD facility and you can go in and schedule in a secure facility teleworking capabilities to get back to your main job. There's more availability for that now than there used to be. I think we're probably in pretty good shape. And in terms of responsibilities, when it goes through what the OSD and the components are responsible for, I'm assuming it's nothing new, but at the same time, does it sound to you like the policy kind of more supportive of delegating at lower levels and kind of leaving it up to the components to figure out how to go about remote work and telework? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Setting policy for the loose federation of the Department of Defense, you have to keep it as broad and as flexible as as possible. Uh, It's sort of a push-pull balance that you try to get to. You want standardization. You know, you want to get to the point where somebody or an agency is not off doing something that's so completely different than than everybody else Mm -hmm. that it causes disruptions. But on the other hand, you have to be mindful that each agency, each department, they have their own budgets. They have their own requirements. If you put some onerous requirement on them, we used to call them, and Congress would do that all the time, we would call them unfunded mandates, right? You must do this, but then they don't give you the money to do it, which causes you to shift priorities, reallocate funds, and that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. um, when you're putting policy out like that, you have to be mindful of the downstream consequences and especially resource requirements. Matt Donovan, former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, it's February and the IRS enters into its annual pressure testing. We'll hear from the taxpayer advocate. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The IRS has made considerable progress on staffing, customer service over the last couple of years. If it was a hospital patient, it might be out of the intensive care unit, but still in the hospital. For a review of the IRS's top challenges as it hits the 2024 filing season, we turn to the national taxpayer advocate, Aaron Collins, in studio. Ms. Collins, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Tom. Thank you. Well, let's get right to it. You have issued your annual report to Congress and outlining the problems. And even though a lot of the processing and customer service issues have been mitigated, they're not zeroed out, are they? No, I think you can say that we are at pre-pandemic levels. And the challenge is that's great because the last three years have been incredibly difficult for taxpayers, practitioners, IRS employees, IRS. But the challenge is pre-pandemic levels were not great for taxpayers. So I think we're back to where we started, and now we need to improve. And you have pointed out in your top set of problems is processing. And were you mainly talking about paper processing, which even though it's a small percentage, still kind of bedevils the agency, or do they have electronic issues also? 
Yeah, so this year for the returns that were filed in 2023, both the electronic and paper original returns seemed to go through without any real hitches as long as there weren't errors or problems with the return. So those payments were being made timely. The challenge the IRS had was amended returns and correspondence. Those spiked during 2023. And so by year end, they had an excess of two plus million amended returns and various correspondence and identity theft was also a big issue that occurred in 2023 with respect to overaged inventory or backlog. Yeah. So the amended returns then piled up on them and many of those were left in piles, so to speak. Yeah, the challenge with the amended returns is a lot of people are not aware that the customer service representatives, those are the folks when you call the 800 number to speak with the IRS, they wear multiple hats. They answer the phone, they help taxpayers, but they also sort of on their downtime process that paper, whether that be amended returns or correspondence. And the challenge the IRS had in order to reach a higher level of service in 2023, they did not process paper. So they answered more calls at the expense of creating a paper backlog. And is there an issue with processing paper in a telework setting? Can you take it home with you? Unfortunately, no. The folks at work, paper itself, they're physically in the campuses in the building. But a lot of the returns are electronic, and so therefore people can work those from other locations. Yeah, so they have a telework policy in place, and people that are going on a case-by-case or file-by-file basis they don't need to be in the IRS office if it's all online. That's correct. And where are they, by the way, with respect to telework at this point? It depends on the position, tends on the person. For example, new employees, they are required to be in the office. But if you're more seasoned, you can have an agreement where, again, depending on the position, but you might be able to do a situation where you work two days per pay period in the office, and then you can work remotely on the other days. And there are some positions within the IRS that you actually could work full-time remote. All right. And then that gets to the staffing issue. And you're saying that even though they've had a lot of hiring since some of the money came through the Inflation Reduction Act, are they where they should be at staffing? Because you pointed out that's still a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, if you look at the numbers, IRS has done a fair amount of hiring, but a lot of that's been internal, which is great because people get promoted. Those are good for the internal folks. But external, we just haven't brought enough people in. We have had an increase the last two years. It's been in the single digits when you look at the net-net number for those who left versus those coming in. So they're making small progress, but they really need to focus on getting the right people in. I mean, public service, there are a lot of people, that's a passion for them, but not everyone wants to come in and be a public servant. So it really is how do we entice these folks to see that giving back and working for your community is a good thing, and that's a challenge the IRS has. But you also pointed out that they need the capacity to do the ingestion, the finding, the hiring of people in the human capital office itself is not fully staffed. Correct. And that is a challenge because even the ones that individuals come in that are interested in a job, the time from they make their first inquiry through the application from when they actually start is too long. It's too long of a process. And especially if you look at folks that are on the lower end of the salary spectrum, they can match that elsewhere. So they're not going to sit around and wait three, four, five months in order to get the position. A hired skilled individual may be coming in for a purpose. They may be more interested. But again, the large percentage of IRS folks, they want a job, they want a salary, they want to give back, but they're not going to wait. Sure. And then there is the issue of special authorities 
for example, Veterans Affairs had all kinds of special authorities to hire people more rapidly. The IRS has some of those. I think you found that they don't really use those tools very well. Well, they have them. And to the extent that they apply for particular jobs, they'll go out and do like what they would refer to as a jobs fair. And they have the ability to hire people on the spot. But the challenge, again, is they still have to go through all the security checks, everything from background to fingerprinting. And so even though the offer comes in a lot quicker, they still have all the back-end processing that has to take place before they can start. We're speaking with Erin Collins. She's the National Taxpayer Advocate at the IRS. And before we get to some of the other issues, do you get the sense that the leadership under Danny Warfel is alert to these things and is kind of approaching them with a sense of urgency? Yeah, I think the additional funds really are both transformational and incentivize people because for the first time in over a decade, they're really looking at the future rather than just trying to put out fires every day. So we still have a few fires that they're working on, but they really are looking forward as to how do we do things better? How do we improve service? How do we be transformational is the term that we use in the building on a daily basis. Sure. And one of those areas is customer service. And we know the disaster of 20, 21, 22, when you couldn't get the phone answered, et cetera. They've come quite a ways back. But you also found some issues with the way they measure that metric, that maybe it's not quite as good as it seems. Well, we have a difference of opinion on how you determine level of service. But my real challenge is I think it's a horrible measure, period, regardless if you apply our methodology or the IRS's methodology. You really need to look at the question of if you're calling, how long are you on hold? Do you get your question answered? Are they able to move whatever your issue is forward? I don't think the IRS should be focusing on how long, how many people are on the calls, whether they're hang up or not hang up, or whether or not you go to a chat bot. You know, let's look at the quality. And quality is judged by the taxpayers, what their needs are. And I want to switch to the information technology modernization, which has been going on now for two generations, basically. And maybe we should just say, let's stop calling it modernizing. (laughs) but call it a continuous process of keeping up to date because that's what they've really been doing, even though there's a formal program, tax systems modernization. It's still a challenge. It is a challenge. When you think about the amount of the volume of what the IRS has, individual tax returns are in excess of $160 million a year. Then you have business returns of approximately, let's say, $20 million a year. And then you have hundreds of millions of information forms, other types of things. It is a heavy lift. And they have that information going back to the dawn of time, in essence. So their systems, it's not like you can just quickly you know, turn on a dime. Uh, they have a lot of information, a lot of material that they need to work with. So uh, that is a challenge for the IRS. So I'd like to go back and use the word modernization. They need to modernize and just not just do quick fixes throughout the year. Because they're on their about fifth or sixth, maybe seventh attempt at modernizing the assembly language master mm-hmm. file system. Right. And they've tried that since the 90s, and the projects always sort of fall apart. Do you think they'll get it done this time around? It's on the short list. And so for the individual master file, I believe they're looking at the next couple years that they will be able to transform the IMF program. And after that, they got to work on the business modernization. Of course, they could always just train 100 people to use assembly, and they would never have to modernize it and keep them around for the next 25 years. That's probably not the most efficient way to do it, but yes, they could do that. Like training steam engine operators, I guess. And finally, you have a long list of legislative recommendations. Let's just maybe discuss the top three other than 
changing the tax code to five lines. Right. Um, I think a lot of people would like to have the tax code changed, but I don't think we're going to get that across the finish line. So some of the things that we focus on, and if you're looking for sort of the greatest impact to taxpayers, I would put requesting Congress or requiring Congress to initiate legislation for non-credential preparers. When you look at the percentage of returns that are filed by preparers, it's about 50%. And of those, a very high percentage of are non-credentialed. So when you think about it, you go to a beautician, they have a license. You go to a doctor, they have a license. I mean, basically, you know, what you do every day, someone has to have license, education, other types of requirements. So these are people handling your financial transactions. And I think it's very important. The other challenge what we're seeing is, and we did as part of a study, looked at the earned income tax credit. And it's a very high percentage of error rate are prepared by non-credentialed individuals. So again, they're harming taxpayers, they're harming tax administration, and we really need to get that enacted. And I think that, to me, it would make a huge difference, especially for the lower-income folks that tend to rely on non-credential individuals. One of the other areas that I'd like to see that would be taxpayer-favorable is the tax court. The United States tax court tends to hear cases that taxes are due. When Congress originally set up the system, refunds went to the district court and the claims court. Deficiency or tax due went to the tax court. Tax court specifically has judges that do nothing but taxes. We'd like to see the court have their jurisdiction expanded to include not only tax due, but refund situations. Um, When you look at the docketed cases in the tax court, 91%, and that's a big number, 91% represent themselves. And so we'd like to see the same situation for refund cases. A lot of individuals may not have the financial means to go into district court or claims court. In my opinion, in my experience, I would not suggest anyone go into those courts without representation. But the representation could be more than the refund. Exactly. And a lot of these refunds are smaller dollars. So if you have a $500,000 refund, you're not going to pay an attorney in order to go into district court or claims court. So give those people an opportunity to have the tax court hear those issues. So those are two of the ones that I would really like Congress to focus on. And do you get a good ear when you send your report up and when you talk to lawmakers? We have interest. I just think it's difficult sometimes to get legislation passed. And so we are going to continue working on that with the members of Congress. We have over 60, I think it's 65 or 66 recommendations this year. And a lot of them are just simple fixes. And others are more transformational, such as giving tax court refund jurisdiction. That's a little bit more of a policy decision. But some of them are just clean fixes that we could make to improve the experience for taxpayers and improve tax administration. Sounds like we could use an omnibus bill for the IRS. That would be a great idea. Aaron Collins is the National Taxpayer Advocate at the IRS. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information, including her report to Congress, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, did the White House break the rules on rulemaking itself? But first, an update on a crucial sector of the defense industrial base. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The recent National Defense Industrial Strategy, all 59 pages of it, highlighted the erosion of U.S. industry's capacity for making things. 
That includes printed circuit boards at the complex end of electronics, the type of parts needed for advanced weapon systems or for artificial intelligence processing. Now there are signs that the domestic PCP industry is awakening. We get a rundown on recent developments from the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, David Schild. Mr. Schild, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Safe to say that these boards we're talking about, we make the simple ones maybe here, but the complex ones have moved offshore and maybe come back with U.S. circuits on them, but don't originate here, and that's changing. You know, the majority of the global printed circuit board market has moved over the last three decades to Asia. About 90% of the world's boards are made there. About 56% of the world's boards are made in mainland China. We invented PCBs in the United States, as we did semiconductors, but we've lost the manufacturing capacity and leadership that we once had. High-end boards that you would find in aerospace and defense applications are still made here in the United States, very often because it's required so by the Department of Defense. And what about other parts of the high-end industry, say, like I mentioned, artificial intelligence processing of intense GPU chips and so forth, which end up in big data farms here. Are those circuit boards from here? Some might be. As you mentioned, the recent National Industrial Base study highlights our dependency on foreign sourcing for critical microelectronics and the fact that so many of our complex defense and aerospace systems depend on these technologies. We made a significant investment, Tom, with the CHIPS Act, a $52 billion down payment on semiconductors. We need to think about the rest of the technology stack, the integrated circuit substrates and print circuit boards that support those microchips. And we need to have a whole ecosystem approach so that we're not simply sending things back and forth across oceans and not building secure and resilient supply chains. Now, the Pentagon did give a big award recently. Tell us more about that to a domestic company for complex boards. Which armed force made that and who did it go to? Yeah, two years ago, the president invoked the Defense Production Act and designated microelectronics, specifically PCBs and integrated circuit substrates, as a critical national technology. What that does is give the Pentagon a sort of hunting license to spend and invest in those technologies. The DPAI awards recently were to Calumet Electronics and GreenSource LLC. Those boards will end up in high-end defense applications. It was about $85 million dollars. That's a good start, but of course we need to do more through the Pentagon and the DPAI authority. And do we also, though, need to build up U.S. capacity for non-defense for the dual-use idea? Because that's an economic incentive because the Defense Department is not the majority volume buyer of complex boards. You know, our homes and cars are filled with multi-layer boards with really complex circuits on them. That's absolutely right. Only about 4% of the global market is aerospace and defense, and so Anything that you use today that really runs on electricity is going to have a PCB inside of it. The majority of those boards, from dishwashers to garage doors, are still made overseas. And what many people don't realize is that once we're outside of the defense market, critical infrastructure applications, think banking, think the power grid, think medical devices, many of those microelectronics are entirely sourced from foreign countries. I think that's an unhealthy and risky dependency. And when the DOD does make an award, like the one you mentioned to the two companies there, they run into the challenge that faces so many of the defense industrial base players, and that is they need steady demand signals from the Pentagon and not the stop and start or we'll make these and then we'll go away for 20 years like we did with fighter planes and this kind of thing so that companies have an incentive to keep those lines and that expertise going. 
Absolutely. You know, this kind of manufacturing needs the steady demand signal that you talked about. It's no different than making military engines, for example. We need to keep the talent onshore. We need to keep the facilities and the technology onshore. The capacity for surge for the ability to ramp up when there might be a crisis. And we've seen recently what happens when the United States has to export large amounts of high-tech defense systems, the demand that that places on our existing domestic capacity. We absolutely have to have more of what we make and depend on made here in America. And we're speaking with David Schild. He's executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. And there has been some work in Congress recently on dependence on China and a lot of fronts including one in the microelectronics area, which we already had some sanctions against already. Yeah, the uh, Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, led so well by Representatives Gallagher and Krishnamurthy, recently released a list of 150 imperatives to maintain America's technological leadership. Right at the top of the list was increasing our capacity for microelectronics manufacturing, including printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. Well, why did all these things leave the country in the first place? Well, I think, you know, there's been a love affair with offshoring and with chasing high margins and low costs by foreign manufacturing. I think we went a little bit overboard. What's happened to the global portfolio when it comes to manufacturing, it's become very unbalanced. And that's why you hear so much referencing to friendshoring, bringing things closer to our shores, and of course, reshoring, bringing things back to the United States. We saw during the COVID-19 pandemic what a reliance on one single point of manufacturing can mean to customers. And we see empty store shelves. We saw the inability to get pickup trucks, for example, because we were waiting on critical microelectronics. I don't think anybody wants to wait on critical defense systems or on the things that power our everyday lives. Well, if you look at California and the Pentagon loves to talk about Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, you hear this term. And it's not Silicon Valley. It's Software Valley. It used to be Silicon Valley. But the fact is making circuits and making circuit boards is chemistry it's water, it's air products and different gases, it's manufacturing, and it has emissions, and it has water discharge, and it has a lot of expensive factories that need to be built in areas where you have huge degrees of regulation, very high labor costs. Beyond the Pentagon desire, there are structural issues in the United States. Certainly, you make a great point, Tom, about our need to be competitive, not just at the federal but at the state level. And it reminds me that when manufacturing capacity goes overseas, we also lose intellectual know-how. So often, research and development is co-located with production. And we need to invent the next generation of printed circuit boards and substrates to go with the next generation of chips. They're going to be made in places like New York, Ohio, and Arizona. Yes, you mentioned New York. There's recently been some announcements that there's going to be a new board manufacturing near Syracuse, New York. And New York is a state that has been losing jobs, losing population, and losing industry for a long time. You know, light bulbs and everything all the way up the chain. And so what happened in New York to cause someone to invest there for printed circuits? Well, I think you see in 26 states around the country companies that are making printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. In New York specifically, TTM Technologies is making a significant investment in partnership with the state of New York to expand their capacity. And what I think is happening, Tom, is that states are looking at the sort of silicon gold rush that's occurring in Arizona, that's occurring in Texas, that's occurring in Ohio, and they're saying, how can we be a part of this manufacturing revolution, this reshoring? And New York seemed to have a little bit of vision there, and they're willing to partner with uh, TTM 
ATM. So we're excited for that, and I don't think they'll be the last state to introduce incentives. People look to the federal government. That demand signal that the CHIPS Act created, I think it's going to be replicated at the state and local level. David Schild is executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the White House might have broken the rules on rulemaking itself. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Contractors are questioning how the White House could ask for compliance with a procurement rule that's not even formally proposed yet. Last week, a guidance memo came out having to do with small business participation in government-wide acquisition contracts. The action raises a lot of questions. Joining me with details, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, this one did seem like a little bit of a reach the rule of two well, for GWACs, but go ahead and start doing it. But we haven't formally come out with the rulemaking yet. You've touched on so many potential implications in that very short opening sentence there, Tom. And, you know, for one thing, this memorandum caught me very much by surprise. And for something of this magnitude and scope, and particularly with this kind of direction of start now, even though we haven't begun writing the proposed changes to the regulations yet. It's really got a lot of disturbing elements. It's not that there's a lack of an understanding of the goal. I mean, it says they want to help agencies promote both a diverse federal supplier base, which is defined in a lot of different ways, and advanced contract stewardship. So let's take care of the taxpayers' dollars, right, by using these multiple award contracts. Those are noble goals. They're not the only goals, though. In fact, one of the goals that's not mentioned anywhere in this seven-page memo is are you getting the results you need from the contracts you award? So it's not just the front end, but it's actually the back end of the agencies getting the support for their missions and functions. But there's a lot of other questions that get raised here. I'll be happy to go over a couple of them. Well, this imposed the rule of two for small businesses in GWACs that are not necessarily set aside for small business. So it seems like a kind of changing the rules for all contractors that one places on these particular government-wide acquisition contracts. Well, and there are competing incentives or objectives here, right? So if you increase the application of the rule of two, which at its core says if the contracting officer believes that there will be two qualified small business bidders of roughly equal characteristics, right, that you can basically freeze the contract at that point or the solicitation at that point and just pick between those two. They haven't even submitted yet. You're making your decision before you've even seen the submissions. You have to have reasonable belief that they would do that, right? There are two problems with that. Number one is it immediately freezes out everybody else because there's frequently way more than two who would love to compete for this and probably to the government's benefit if you did. The second thing, though, and I think the more insidious uh, consequence is it pretty much locks in only those people who are already in the business of they're on this multiple award contract. They're core business is government contracting. So all this push that you've heard in the administration, and you, you heard it just last week at a big conference of outside investors, you know, we want more innovators. We want more non-traditional suppliers. We want more small businesses who bring the innovation. Rule of two pretty much locks those people out because you're not going to be the first or second end if you're not already in the game. And this also goes along with, you know, maybe in the flip side, if they're trying to encourage more people to come in, but at the same time, they impose just endless reporting and compliance regulations on your labor practices, 
whether you have a gas stove in the company kitchen, all of these things that I would think people that are new to the federal contracting field would say, this ain't worth it, all this work. There's even a line in this memorandum, and then we'll get to some other things that illuminate what you just said there, but you know that, in fact, companies may find it easier to compete for work under their, quote, reduced administrative burden and simpler evaluation procedures than they do just pursuing competition in the open market. There are very few companies that say it's easier and faster to do business with the federal government than it is in the commercial marketplace. Right. And then there's also the issue of whether the administrative practices rules and laws permit an agency to impose compliance on a rule that's not even proposed yet, let alone out in the proposed state. This may be the most gravely concerning line in the entire seven pages. OFPP, that's the Office of Federal Procurement Policy that issued the memorandum, encourages early agency adoption of these management steps, even though in the prior paragraph it says, you know, the Small Business Administration and the agency members of the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, have begun developing proposed regulatory amendments to address these actions. We don't know what those proposed amendments are going to say. We haven't had an opportunity to review them and comment on them. The government had not had an opportunity to adjudicate and incorporate those comments, which often make the regulations better. And yet their agencies are being encouraged to begin immediately adopting these management steps. This is confusion of the highest order, and it really does violate the basic elements of the administrative procedure. Act, in our view. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And on that dramatic note, I want to switch gears here and get to the tax bill that has cleared the House, and it has an R&D tax credit change that a lot of companies welcome. In your view, it also makes things better for the government. It does. You know that this bill, uh, which was negotiated both between the House and the Senate, so it now goes to the Senate. We'll see what happens on the Senate side. That may be hearings, et cetera. But it, it's a basic trade-off of some business-related tax benefits with some enhancements in credits for lower-income families with children. And it's a, a trade that's been discussed for a couple of years now. But it's often seen that this, particularly this research and development tax credit, is just for the benefit of commercial companies. There's a huge hidden benefit for the federal government here, Tom, because a company that's doing business with the government, if it can write off its research and development in the year it incurs those costs, can actually do that research before they have a contract as part of, in fact, the development of a way to respond to a solicitation to improve the systems and processes that the government would have. This is free benefits to the government in advance of a contract, but it goes away if, in fact, you can only write off 20% of that cost in the Europe. So we strongly endorse this, and we endorse this not as a partisan bill or a business bill, but as a bill that at its core has a real benefit for every single agency in the federal government. Which means it probably doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of actually passing. But Well, one of the things that happened when the provision expired back a couple of years ago and we went back to only 20% per year is companies had spent the money, put the bid in. It was part of their bid. It was being evaluated. And now all of a sudden the entire cost basis of their proposal is thrown into a cocked hat. So uh, that caused a lot of disruption and concern. And we had companies just in the services business, this is not just manufacturing, who were writing off hundreds of billions of dollars of losses associated with this. So we'd really like to see this restored. And we do think every agency in the government, again, that drive for innovation, that drive for system and process improvement, this helps in that regard. So we strongly support this bill. Yeah. And this sudden change then can really change a company's balance sheet as well as its activities. 
It can. It changes the balance sheets. It changes the valuations. It changes your ability actually to bid and win the contracts because now you may not have, have the cost basis that you need to have to be able to win. And I also wanted to ask you your take on the proposed rule that contractors would have pay bans for job openings. And there's this whole new approach coming to pay, and they're telling agencies you can't look at someone's pay history in hiring them. And there's a lot going on for contractors, too, with pay. And what's your take here? This one is following the procedures in the Administrative Procedure Act. So, you know, it was in the Federal Register notice last Tuesday, and it is a proposed rule for what they call pay equity and transparency in federal contracting. It has a number of flaws associated with it, not the least of which is that the justification is that this will save contractors time and money and help them hire the right person. By the way, I would note that last Friday's jobs report says we're continuing to have a very tight labor market. You know, there's uh, still more jobs open than there are people looking for work. And that's especially true in the government contracting business. And so sometimes hiring anybody at all is a real challenge in that regard. So we think it'll cost more, but we really think the real constraint is that the contracts will probably limit what contractors can pay. They already do, right? So every contract has already bands of pay built into it. So many years of experience, so much degree of series, and this is what you're going to get to charge for it. You win the contract, not by bidding high, but by bidding low. I think if the government really wants contractors to pay more, they need to start awarding contracts to companies that are paying people a much fairer and decent wage. That's not what they're doing. Yes. In some ways, it would almost force the GS system on federal contractors and that what you're doing for a contractor is within this band, and that's the way life is. Well, there are some states, of course, that have some version of this already, and the District of Columbia just uh, put a law passed, I think, uh, back on the 12th of January. So it's it's still technically inside its 30-day congressional review process, but I don't see any sign that Congress is going to reject it. But whenever you start doing this, two things will happen. Number one is you're going to have to put a band in place, even though that actually might reduce your ability to hire the person you need. The other thing, of course, is who's going to say, oh, I'd love to start at the low end of the pay band? And we'll leave it right there. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for letting us on here and look forward to the next one. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. But first, federal agency scores plummeted on the 17th round of scorecards for how they deal with the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FITARA. But don't think the wheels have fallen off IT modernization itself. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me with why these lower grades aren't necessarily a sign of problems. And Jason is with us now. Let's start with the beginning here, Jason. How exactly did they do on the FATARA scorecards? There was only one A. This uh, USAID, Agency for International Development, got their uh, fifth A in a row and ninth overall since FATARA started. And the rest were Bs and Cs and, and even a couple Ds this time. Uh, and the last time they did a scorecard, Tom, in, Jan in September of 2023, there were no Ds. This time there's three of them. Last time there were five Cs. This time there's 10 of them. And last time there was 16 Bs. Now there's only 10 of them. So you see grades dropped across the board. And, and, and Tom, this is, you know, again, disappointing, but let's let's not, you know, all, all run to the corner and cry. We're not going back to COBOL. It's not client server all over again, right? There are reasons for the drops in grades, and they're good reasons. And they are? 
Well, let's start with the fact they uh, actually evolved the scorecard. And one of the ways they evolved the scorecard was with this brand new, something called the cloud computing uh, category. And I caught up with Carol Harris, GAO's uh, Director of Cybersecurity and IT, after last week's roundtable to find out more about this new category. The cloud category comes from work that we are currently doing for Mr. Connolly with regard to federal cloud procurement across the government. And the five things that we are measuring in the cloud category right now comes from OMB's 2019 federal cloud computing strategy. So among other things, our agencies are required to ensure that the CIOs oversee modernization, that agencies have cloud service level agreements attached to all of their cloud deployments, as well as standardized SLAs, uh, service level agreements. And so these are the things that we were looking for across the 24 agencies, and that's what we measured for the calculation of this category. GAO's Carol Harris says the new report on agency efforts to meet this OMB cloud smart requirements should be out later this spring. She also highlighted one big concern that's already emerged from GAO's preliminary work around the implementation of, you heard her say, service level agreements or SLAs for cloud instances. None of the agencies have fully implemented the five categories with the exception of DOD. And so that's something that we need to see improved progress in. And that's when I cited the 47% on average that's what we're not seeing across the agencies in the implementation of these five categories. There's some surprise that DOD was the leader of this, but credit to them. When you looked at some of the other categories, are there also other areas you, that you would point to said other shortfalls in terms of how the implementation is going that you can talk to a little bit? One of the most surprising things is, you know, one of the key requirements is for high-value assets to have these SLAs and to have continuous awareness of the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of the assets and the information contained on the cloud for these HVAs. And that's something that we didn't see across the board. And that's, you know, one of the areas that, in particular, agencies need to prioritize and and get that addressed immediately. Now, Harris says comparing the previous scorecards, this one actually is not a fair comparison. It's more apples and oranges because of these, uh, the cloud computing and other changes. And that's why the drop in grades actually is not too concerning for Congressman Jerry Connolly, the author of Fatara, Harris, and even the CIOs who spoke at the roundtable. And Connolly has been doting over these scorecards as if they were like his pet cocker spaniel for many years. What else did he change in this round of scorecards? Another big change was around the MGT Act, Modernizing Government Technology. Now, Tom, as a quick reminder, the MGT Act allowed agencies, authorized them to set up working capital funds to help pay for IT modernization from savings or leftover money. And I looked at this back when this was passed uh, back in 2018, and about 17 agencies already had working capital funds that included IT, but maybe weren't related to the MGT Act. So they were, at the time, they were getting penalized for really something that many people would call semantics. At the same time, agencies, there were several who were unable to set up working capital funds because their general counsels believed they needed permission from the appropriators, which they haven't gotten. And in fact, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is one of those agencies. Sarah Jazz is the deputy CIO at HUD. She says HUD is work has a working capital fund in its CFO's office, but that does not support IT modernization efforts. That is something that has impeded some of the flexibilities that we would like to be able to continue to work towards. Uh, We do see some hope of that coming into the fiscal 24 year, and we're hopeful that that is something that we will be able to leverage in order to be able to quickly address some of the issues that are uh, part of our long underlying strategies. HUD Deputy CIO Sarah Jazz. 
speaking at the roundtable last week held by Jerry Connolly around Fatara 17. The GAO's Harris also says the change in the scorecard recognizes agencies which have a working capital fund or something that functions like that and the honor and the spirit, obviously, of, of the MGT Act. And the scores reflected that, Tom. 11 agencies now have A's up from 8 last time. Nine now have B's up from seven back in September. There are no C's this time. That's down from eight in September. And actually, there are uh, four D's this time up from one last time. Harris says another big change is something called the Progress Tracker, where GAO and Connolly are paying attention to previous scorecard categories, where the committee decided agencies had accomplished goals like software licensing and data center consolidation. But there's a recent report from GAO that highlights problems with software licensing that agencies now have have seemed to have stepped backwards. And Harris says that's something the Progress Tracker is designed to stop. That report was looking at what are the most widely and costliest software licenses across the federal government. And then the second part of it was, okay, of the most widely used licenses, what were over and under purchased? And we couldn't answer that last question because the agencies didn't have the information available to do so. And the key ingredients that you need in order to be able to know whether an agency has appropriately assessed the licenses for their organization is whether they have tracked the license usage, and then also compared their inventories of software licenses against their known purchases. And we didn't see that in all cases. And so unfortunately, we have seen the backsliding because they were in a position to do that in 2020. GAO's Carol Harris, again, after the Fatara roundtable held last week by Jerry Connolly, she says it's clear agencies have lost this as a priority because she blames it was not on the Fatara radar. All right. And getting back to Connolly and the Fatara radar, he added the transition to the EIS, that big GSA telecommunications contract that's on the scorecard a year or so ago. But you found out something else about what's going on with EIS transition and the scorecard. Now, we know agencies, and especially large ones, have struggled to migrate away from the old networks contract to the EIS vehicle. And the Fatara scorecard showed not a lot of, not any progress in September. 10 agencies with passing grades, 14 still with failing grades for their transition, uh, mostly or all from networks. But I've also now learned that Connolly asked GAO to report on the EIS transition progress. Now, he asked for that review in May 2022. That's when agencies missed that first real big deadline. But Harris says the work based on that request actually will start this spring. We'll be able to really dig in deep and ascertain like progress and the reasons why agencies are not able to you know, make this transition on time. And we'll also dig into the missed cost savings as a result as well, because that's a huge component of this. But when you take a look at the progress that's been made, certainly over the past two years, agencies have you know, done their best. And, but still, we still have, I believe, 14 agencies that, that did not meet the deadline. And so as a result, you see those Fs on the scorecard. But in fairness, though, because they are you know, nearly 80, 90% complete, we did factor that level of completion into their scores versus, you know, no credit whatsoever to be fair to them. We have seen seen some progress there, but we want to see more. Yeah, everybody Jeez. wants to see more. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a common factor, Tom, is around successful agencies have an executive sponsor. They have visibility across the agency and their telecommunications network and associated inventory. And I think that's something GAO will continue to look at uh, in, the, in the coming months. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.